Well, good morning. It's great to have everybody here today at the chapel. Welcome. Uh, just a couple, uh, really one announcement I want to make. Uh, there was a teen um, get-together scheduled for today, a pool party that's been canceled. So I imagine they'll reschedule that. So sorry about that, teens, but we'll make sure we get that back in the mix in some fashion. Um, before we go to prayer, I just want to read to you one passage from Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 4 and 5 is a glorious passage that shows us the worth and the beauty and the wonder of God the Father and God the Son. And it ends by saying this at the end of chapter 5. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And we get to partake in that in just a little way as we sing praises to our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to get together as your people. Lord, I pray even as we sing that the cross, the resurrection, your providential watch care over us, the, the wonder that you've revealed yourself to us in your word, All these things would not be just humdrum, common things to us, but you would enliven our souls afresh with the wonder of who you are and what you have done for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, as we do go to prayer, we are keenly aware of those within our congregation who are struggling with physical challenges. And I don't want to miss anyone, but I would want to remember, especially right now, Diana Kelly with with her challenges physically, that you would, in a fresh and mighty way, minister your grace and your presence to her and her family that goes beyond all understanding. And Father, that you would grant healing to her body, and we commit all of that, Lord, to, to your will. So again, Lord, we thank you that we are your people. And we are people of great hope. We pray you'll use us in our communities. You'll use us with church people. You'll use us in our nation. You'll use us in every way imaginable to further your purposes. We thank you, Lord, that you are always here and that we are honored and blessed to worship you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. morning, everyone. Would you join in singing with us, Only King Forever. Let's sing our God and firm foundation. God and firm foundation, our rock, the only solid ground, the nations rise and fall, the kingdoms once strong now shaken, we trust forever in your name, the name of Jesus, we trust the name. 
We trust the name of Jesus. You are the only King forever. Almighty God, we lift you higher. You are the only King forever, forevermore. You are victorious. You are the only King forever. Almighty God, we lift you higher. You are the only King forever, forevermore. You are victorious. And you're unmatched in all your wisdom. Unmatched in all your wisdom. In love and justice you will reign. Every knee will bow. We bring, we bring our expectation, our hope, and our hope is anchored in your name, the name of Jesus. We trust the name, we trust the name of Jesus. You are the only King forever. Almighty God, we lift you higher. You are the only King forever, forevermore. You are victorious. You are the only King forever. Almighty God, we lift you higher. You are the only King forever, forevermore. You are victorious. our banner high. We lift our banner high. We lift the name of Jesus. From age to age you reign. Your kingdom has no end. We lift our banner high. We lift the name of Jesus. From age to age you reign. Your kingdom has no end. You are the only king forever. Almighty God, we lift you higher. You are the only king forever, forevermore. You are victorious. You are the only king forever. Almighty God, we lift you higher. You are the only king forever, forevermore. You are victorious. You are the only king forever. Almighty God, we lift you higher. You are the only king forever, forevermore. You are victorious.
sing, there is a name. There is a name who reigns without contention, whose power can't be questioned or contained. With humble faith, he rules the earth and heavens. His glory knows no measure or refrain. And it's bursting past the borderlines of space. Jesus, enthroned upon the praises of our Sing Jesus. Jesus, you're the king and you're the center of it all. There is a name. There is a name. It's reaching past the margins and calling sons and daughters back. He's calls to you. And as he says, we can hear. We can hear the roar of heaven as prodigals are coming home again. Oh, the triumph. Oh, the triumph of his name will never end. We sing Jesus. Jesus, enthroned upon the praises of our hearts. Jesus, you're the king and you're the center of it all. Sing Jesus, Jesus, enthroned upon the praises of our heart. Jesus, you're the king and you're the center of it all. Every eye will see, and every heart will know. There is no name above Jesus. For every eye will see, every heart will know. There is no name above the name of Jesus. Death could not hold him down. No grave could keep him bound. All sin and sickness bow to the name of Jesus. For every eye will see, every heart will know. There is no name above the name of Jesus. Death could not hold him down. No grave could keep him bound. All sin and sickness bow to the name. Jesus, we sing Jesus, 
Jesus, enthroned upon the praises of our heart. Yes, we sing to you. We sing Jesus, Jesus, you're the king and you're the center of it all. Jesus, enthroned upon the praises of our heart. Jesus, you're the king and you're the center of it all. There is a name, there is a name. Who reigns without contention, whose power can't be questioned or contained, with humble faith. He rules the earth and heavens, His glory knows no measure or refrain, and it's bursting past the borderlines of space.
of heaven held its breath till that stone was moved for good for the lamb had conquered death and the dead rose from their tombs and the angels stood in awe for the souls of all who Father, it is so good to be in your house, to be praising you. Lord, we are bombarded by the world on every single side. And I pray that we would remember how much uh, bolstering of our faith happens when we come together as a church, as the body of Christ. May we never forsake the gathering together, not just on a Sunday morning, but during the week. And may we fill our lives with people um, who love you and who know you so that we can encourage and challenge each other and so that we can go out and reach people in our sphere of influence. Lord, your presence is so precious to us and we do not take lightly that you've chosen to meet with us through your son. Thank you so much that you've made a way You've made a way for wholeness. You've made a way for completion and satisfaction. Lord, the space in the hearts of those who don't know you, who are here this morning, who are listening online, I pray that they would recognize, they would see that this is a place where we are encountering God, filled with people who have encountered God, and they would know that the space in their hearts that they've tried endlessly to fill with so many things will always remain a vacuum until they welcome 
their creator into their life as boss, as Lord, as friend, as savior, as the one whom they rely upon wholly and fully. And Lord, we also confess as your church, as your children, as your followers, when we have partial amnesia to how you and only you can fill us in the deepest places of who we are. God, forgive us for when we've tried to fill those places with other things. Help us, Lord, not to continue in our own way. Lord, forgive us. We welcome your correction. We welcome your rebuke because we know that that's not the end of the story. Like a loving parent, it always leads to growth. It's always for the sake of protection. Help us, Lord, to want to look more like your son than like the world. To be accepted and approved by you more than by the world. May we not chase after approval from the world. And may we be people of strong convictions, God not wafer thin in our faith. And when we know we're wavering, may we go to other believers and confess and speak and encourage and challenge and know that we're not perfect, but our God is perfect and that he welcomes us with open arms. Lord, I pray this morning that you would move and speak very powerfully through Pastor Tim as we continue through the book of Malachi. May he speak to hearts, God, a rebuke, a challenge, love and encouragement to those who need it. And I pray, Lord, that what he speaks from you would not fall on deaf ears. May your power be made manifest in this place through the preaching of your word. We love you. We honor you. And we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. be seated and the children can be dismissed for junior church. I'd like you all to turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. So go to the book of Matthew and back one book and that'll be the book of Malachi. Um, We're going to be looking at chapter 2 beginning at verse 10 down through verse 16. So Malachi 2 verses 10 through 16. This text contains the third uh, series of rebukes. Uh, that are coming from God through the prophet to the people of Israel. Um, We, uh, I think, discussed with uh, Doug and James both that in terms of chronologically working your way through the Bible, and this is the part that's hard to understand, but if you can grasp it, it'll help you. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah, okay, are the same time frame as the book of Malachi, Okay, so when the Bible's kind of put together first historical books, then poetic books, then the prophets. Okay, so as you go through the Old Testament as an entirety, you, you're not going to get a chronological path. Okay, by the time you get to the book of Psalms, you've kind of finished the end of the, the chronological section. You, you hit Job, Psalms, uh, Song of Solomon, all the, they're poetic books. And then the last portion of the Old Testament are prophetic books. So we're in the prophetic books. 
time frame wise, we're at really what is the end of the Old Testament chronologically. The next thing that happens after the book of Malachi is the coming of Christ, the fulfillment of the promised hope. Okay, does that, does that confuse anybody by that? Or are we good? Okay, I confused the uh, microphone. I hear that. Um, so I want to read through this text. Uh, it's clearly a text that talks about the topic of marriage. And uh, so let's begin reading in verse 10. You'll note the way this argument is set up. Okay, it says this. Are we not all children of the same father? Are we not all created by the same God, as we have sung so beautifully this morning? Then why do we betray each other, violating the covenant of our ancestors? Judah, that's speaking of the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, has been unfaithful. And a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem, the capital city. The men of Judah have defiled the Lord's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols. May the Lord cut off from the nation of Israel every last man who has done this, yet brings an offering to the Lord of heaven's armies. Okay, so there's a call for out of an understanding of where this mixed relationship goes, there is a strong call against it that's present in the text. Verse 13, here is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning, because he pays no attention to your offerings and does not accept them with pleasure. Yet you cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord... Witness the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with violence or cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart and do not be unfaithful to your wife. Well, that's a strong text. What it aims at, I think, is abundantly clear. The topic at hand is the topic of marriage, which brings to mind for many of us our wedding day. Uh, Weddings are days of great beauty. There's beautiful music. They're days of hope. And I must admit that I have not always loved weddings. I don't like the long days. I don't like the long drives. I don't like having to dress up. I don't like having to give away that much money. But my sentimental side has been kicking in. Okay, probably having three daughters married over the last 10 years has influenced my thoughts. I've been more attracted to the beauty and promises of the day. And the question I ask myself is why? What is it about a wedding day that makes it at some level attractive once you get past the minor irritations? Okay, what is, what is it that makes it compelling? What is it that drives us? And I think it is this. I think it is as the large, unconditional vows, commitments, and promises are made. In the audience, there is a 
collective wish or desire. And I want you to think with me. When you're sitting there and you're watching a marriage ceremony and, and all those promises are being made and everybody's smiling and the moment is pure, the bride's dressed in white and the groom looks reasonably good for the day. And, and, and there's something that collectively wells up in your heart. And it, it, it probably happens for most of us in a subconscious fashion, but yet a very real fashion. And it is that we want... We hope, we wish that the promises that are being made in that moment are actually true. We find in that ceremony a beauty and we want to know that the promises made will become promises that are kept. And, and there's just, it, I, I think it's something, it just wells up within you a desire For all of the beauty that is captured and all of the large, overwhelming promises that are made, there is a desire, a distinct longing for that to be true. Sadly, our culture is at odds with God's design for marriage. And I just mentioned these things real quickly and briefly because they're part of the backdrop, I think, to why this topic of marriage is so important. Number one, the biblical truth of the beauty of marriage between a man and a woman is under attack. I don't even think I need to elaborate on that. Uh, if you're watching the Olympics, uh, you're getting a lot of that pushed in your face, as you will on a lot of television programs. Secondly, the topic of marriage and divorce, which tend to go hand in hand in our culture in the modern Western world, it's not an easy topic because the majority of people that I know have been significantly impacted by the breakdown of marriage, by fault of self or fault of the partner. And this is true in my immediate family on a number of occasions. I have seen firsthand, personally and professionally, the negative impact on people from divorce that lasts well into adulthood. And that that is the part that I find most shocking as I have moved into the sixth decade of my life that that pain that struggle that hurt that disappointment at some level persists because we wanted it to be true I know a lot of pain is associated with the topic often manifested in regret denial anger hurt resentment And as a result, the current generation of young people is understandably jaded to the topic of marriage. At best, disinterested because of what they have seen and because of what they have experienced. If you've been through divorce or affected by it, and I've experienced this almost every time I've preached on the topic of marriage and divorce... You probably want me today to be bold and truthful. Not to wound and not to injure, not to wake up some sense of false guilt that doesn't change anything. But to create within the context of of God's people an aspiration, an aspirational goal, if you will, a desired outcome that we long for and pursue together for the glory of God, because we understand the significant things that are at stake. 
my prayer this morning and my hope today is that we will honor God by keeping our promises and treasuring our marriages. And that affects every person in this room, whether you deny it or not. The context you were raised in, the home you lived in, broken or whole, has in some way affected your view of marriage. Our goal as a church family is this. It's to be a biblical church. It's to, when we come to a topic like this, and this is just part of preaching through a book of the Bible, there are topics you can't just skate around and say, we're going to go to the next text. No, this is the one in front of us. This text informs us about how we ought to live in the context of our marital relationships and our family relationships. And so our aim is always is to be biblical, to find out what God says and what I need to do about it. So with that background set, we move into this text. Now, it's very interesting as, as Malachi walks up to this topic, he starts out on a broad picture and then moves to a narrow focus. Okay, so the, the broad picture is going to be a question about promises and faithfulness in general for the nation of Israel, and then promises and covenants specifically in relationship to marriage. Okay, so I want you to watch how he does this, verse 10. He starts out very broad. Are we not all children of the same father? And are we not all created by the same God? Okay, so what is, what is, a, what is, what is Malachi doing? Malachi is going out to the big picture so that when he gets to the specific issue at hand, there is an onus, there's a sense of burden or proof that's already been given that this idea of marriage comes from the one who is Israel's father. He called them into existence, and he is also their creator. So he has, as a result of that position, a right to rule, to direct, and to guide. Okay, does that part make sense? So he first establishes God's high and exalted position by rhetorical questions. Deuteronomy 6, 5 to 8 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, that is the first covenant that God makes with Israel as a nation once they begin to move after the exodus. He's calling them to a high degree of absolute loyalty to God himself. That all of our understandings of life and all of our values and all of the things that we treasure need to be justifiable in and from the hand of God. And so as Malachi starts, he, he looks at God's role as creator and talks about the clear implications and effects that flow out of that truth. Now, what becomes clear at the end of verse 10 is he says, then why do we betray? And it's very interesting how Malachi doesn't talk to the people as if they're the problem. He uses the editorial we, okay? And hopefully every Sunday when we bring God's truth, it's not us talking down to you, but it's us as pastors identifying with you as we seek to put biblical truth into practice. Our goal is not to tell you how to live, it's to tell us how to live. Does that make sense? So there's a, there's a bigger picture at play. Now there's a charge that's leveled in the second half of verse 10. And Malachi asked the question, why do we betray each other violating the covenant of our ancestors? So he's moving into a general and then he's going to go into a narrow focus. Okay, I, I, I just quickly looked up the first commandment. 
I am the Lord your God. Have no other gods before me. That's a covenant that Israel has with God. That he is to be central and unique and alone as their object of worship. Okay, so that's a, that's a covenant. That's a promise between Israel and God himself. And Malachi thinks that that covenant relationship with God, that oath before God, that he is first unique and deserves all of my energy devoted to him, he thinks that that should affect their daily life. Okay, and I want you to watch how he does this. So the broad contract with God himself, God is first, God is central, but he accuses them of being unfaithful. The the word that are used in, in the New Living Translation is of violating the covenant and betraying each other. Okay, those two thoughts. So there's an effect on the vertical plane that their relationship to God, once that is broken, it has an unavoidable effect on the horizontal plane. Once I don't love God truly and fully, I will find it more difficult to love my wife as I should. Okay? But when I am loving God supremely, this love on a horizontal plane towards my wife, towards my family, towards others, flows very naturally. Okay? So Jesus summarizes that command in the New Testament, doesn't he? He kind of takes all the commands and summarizes it in two things. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And when you do that, he says, you fulfill the whole law. Okay, so I need to be sure that I'm doing this. And what Malachi is saying to Israel is there is a question about your fidelity and your relationship with the God who created you and called you into existence as a nation. So verses 11 and following then get to the, what I'm I'm calling it the individual guilt. So there's a national issue that is being manifested in a stronger way in specific family settings. It's not saying that everyone in Israel is doing this, but it is generally true, excuse me, that the nation is not walking with and honoring God as they should. So verse 11, Judah has been unfaithful and a detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. So in the nation and particularly in the capital city. The men of Judah have defiled the Lord's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols okay the idea is that they have other devotions in their life the interesting thing is if you go back in context to the book of Ezra which is contemporary to this the book of Ezra says this in in chapter 9 it says the people and priests and the leaders have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring people with detestable practices they have taken some of their daughters as wives Okay, so you can start to see God's called Israel to loyalty to himself. Some of those within Israel, particularly in the context of leadership, are shunning the supremacy of God in their lives. And the way you know that in specifics is that they're connecting themselves to, in a permanent fashion, those that have other loyalties, affinities, and commitments. Okay, and that becomes the problem in this text. It... it, some, some of the commentators actually speculate that some of these men, particularly the leaders, were divorcing themselves from their Israelite wives so that they could remarry, okay, which is something that the Bible clearly and repeatedly prohibits. But it's the issue of the practices of these women that has an effect on the nation. Verse 12, 
And this is a strong verse. It says, may the Lord cut off from the nation of Israel every last man who has done this and yet brings an offering to the Lord of heaven. And I want you to notice the specifics of it. Every man who has done that practice and acts like he is still loyal to God himself. You follow that? They do the practice and then feign worship. They come into the temple where the one true living God manifests himself to the nation of Israel and worship God while maintaining these other allegiances on the side. Now, here's what's true in Scripture. God's response to that is never calm. It, it, from a human perspective, it doesn't appear measured. It often is very measured and very desirous of people turning from their sin and coming back to God. But you can see that the, the pressure that builds in this text is that there is marriage outside of the faith, which essentially desecrates God's temple. And the reason is, as verse 12 says, in this setting, when I try to tolerate a plurality of single allegiances, compromise in one area is always unavoidable and inevitable. Okay, and that's true in our lives in every way. Okay, when we tolerate a mixed bag of allegiances, we will always end up compromising in some area of allegiance in our lives. Okay, there's a wise warning that comes out of 1 Corinthians 6. And I say this to those of you that are not married, because this is advice to those that are not married. 1 Corinthians 6 simply says this. It says, don't be unequally joined together. Meaning someone that follows and loves and desires to honor God with their whole heart should not be connecting to someone who could care less about God. Okay, and Amos tells us why. In Amos 2, it says this. Two cannot walk together unless they're in agreement, unless they're going the same direction. Otherwise, the result will be a continued antagonism that ultimately will destroy that relationship. Okay, so the, the, the Bible is clear on this topic. I, as a believer, should marry a believer. All right, we as a pastoral team will not perform ceremonies for people when there is a case one is a believer and one is not. It's not fair to either individual because the affinities and the commitments will lead to conflict at some point in the relationship and is likely to destroy that relationship, that covenant of marriage. Okay? So the next thing that Malachi goes on to say is this in verse 13. He says, here is another thing you do. So out of that setting, okay, where there is broad compromise, general compromise amongst leaders, therefore it flows down to people. Because that is the case, Nehemiah says this. Here is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping, and groaning. Because he pays no attention to your offering and does not accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? And Nehemiah is right to the point. He says, I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed, now here's where he's going specific, watch. The Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. And that's a fascinating view of marriage, isn't it? What an awe-inspiring picture. That when people stand in the presence of an assembly and make promises, the Lord is witness. That he is acknowledging and calling. 
He is uniting in, in, a, in a permanent way. Genesis 2, the two come together by God's design and become one flesh. That is that they are wed and welded in permanence together. And to break and shatter that will always lead to some sort of devastating negative consequence. So Malachi says to them, at the specific charge, you sense correctly that he does not approve of your worship, nor does he accept it with pleasure. And it's a very interesting thought, isn't it? There is something when your heart is clean before God and you come and offer songs of praise to God, there is something beautiful about knowing that that brings pleasure to God, right? So in that worshiping of God, whether it's in doing your, your job at work appropriately and honestly, whether it's loving your wife, even when things are difficult between you, whether it's coming to church and joining together in corporate worship as a corporate expression of our love and gratitude to God, God responds to that with favor. He takes pleasure in that. You ever think about that? I think sometimes we, we tend to sing by rote. We like the tune. The tune moves our heart. Where what really should be moving us is that God finds pleasure when we exalt him together. There is something beautiful about that. But Malachi's charge in this text is, you guys are coming with mixed motives. You've thrown your wife away and you come in before God like everything's fine. And what Malachi is saying, it's not fine. As a result of that divided heart, your worship is merely theater. It's hypocrisy. It's life behind a mask. He calls them out coldly. Because sometimes that's the kind of call that I need in my life. I need a direct confrontation from God about the true nature and status of my heart and my covenant with him. Because that covenant directly affects how I relate to my wife on a daily basis. And I can never separate the two. Though I may try to, I am unable to. It's very interesting in verse 14, how he says this. You cry out. Why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'm, I'm, I have tears. I have weeping. I'm, I'm groaning. I'm, I'm, I'm emotionally committed to the experience. But Malachi says, yes, yes, you are. But externals are a very minor measure of true heart. So I always have to be checking my life on a daily basis before God or on a, on a regular basis when I come for corporate worship to pause and say, God, I want my offering of worship with my brothers and sisters today before you as our Father and our Creator to be true so that you will find not displeasure but pleasure in it. Okay, it's a very, very powerful text and statement. They say, God, why don't you listen to us? They, they rebut Malachi. Malachi says, I'll give you the reason. You act loyal publicly, but have broken faith in the most intimate and astonishing way. You have shattered and disregarded your marriage covenant that God meant to be permanent. And that with total disregard for the well-being of that other person. So when you deny God his right due in your life as a Christian to love him, 
it will devastate your life in many other ways, in ways that you cannot even imagine. Because what I sow is what I reap. This text has a warning, but I also, as I read this, I also see a call. Malachi is saying, I'm going to tell you exactly what your issues are. Get them right with God. Right? There's, in that rebuke is a, as a parent, hopefully, when you correct your child, you're not simply trying to make them feel bad about their behavior. There's a, there's a call, there's a desire for them to walk in right relationship with you as their God-ordained authority, right? The same thing is true with God. He issues a strong rebuke through his mouthpiece, Malachi, but at the end, he's, he's, he's calling them back to value and treasure the relationship that they have been decimating. Verse 15. Now he gets into the rationale based on original design. Okay, so if God through Malachi is saying, Malachi, your view, the view of marriage in Israel is decimating original design and purpose, then I'm going to give you rationale for how it's supposed to be, the original design. So verse 15, he picks up and he says this. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart and remain loyal to the wife of your youth. Now, what he's done again is he's rung the bell of creation again, right? If I go back up to verse 10, it says we are all of children of the same father, made family, and are we not all created by the same God? Here, he talks about marriage and how the creator envisions that specifically. Didn't he, God... In the context of marriage, make us one. Now, I, I don't know when you listen to this emphasis on creation, how that impacts you. Okay? Years ago, I, it's probably 20 years. It's just, it's hard for me to believe that I can think back that far. Even harder to believe that I can remember specific events. Okay? 30, about 20 years ago, I read a book called Darwin's Black Box. Okay, it's written by Michael Behe. He's a professor of microbiology at Lehigh University. And I was, I was taken by the book. I was, it's an argument for intelligent design. Okay, it's not a full-on argument for creation as we understand it, but it is clearly an argument that this could not happen apart from an intelligent designer, therefore God. All right, Michael Behe is a Catholic, and he proves it by having seven children. Okay? Uh, Really neat guy. I, on a whim one day, I said, you know, I'm going to call Michael Behe. I finished the book and I'm going to call him. I want to go to lunch. He said, how's tomorrow? I said, tomorrow's perfect. I called Jerry Scott. I said, you want to get lunch with Michael Behe? He's like, he's like, yeah. He said, oh, I'm free. I'll go. Went and talked with him. One of the things we learned in that discussion, something I've, I've learned if you, if you start to study a little bit in the scientific realm, understanding just of the category of intelligent design, that Michael Behe's arguments have been attacked, but have never been refuted. Does that make sense? People have severe disregard for him because what he said out of this high chair at Lehigh University, a very respected school. 
and one of the top professors start writing a book and talking about the fact that this could not happen apart from God, he drew the ire of his whole school of study at Lehigh University. He said to me, he said, it it was strange the reactions I got when that book was released. So I said to him, I said, Mike, what if people can't rebut it, they can't postulate another way that it could have happened. When you say apart from God, it could not have happened. Why won't they yield to that truth? Why is that conclusion so, listen to what I say, so utterly unacceptable, if not detestable? I mean, he got a lot of pressure in the academic realm for writing that book. Here's what he said to me. He said, Tim, there are consequences to accepting the notion of a creator God. And those notions or that he has the right to govern, to control, and to legislate. And you and I live in a world from 25 years ago, the movement of the, the postmodern era, which has decimated the concept of truth. So when you talk about a God who has the the right to legislate, to set moral boundaries, there is a repulsion to that in our culture, a severe emotional rejection because what we want to be is free. Okay? If you don't understand that, you're living with your eyes closed. Okay, what's happening in the realm of gender and sexuality, and I could go on and on in many, many areas is an attempt to say, I do not want anybody controlling my life. And if you're the person who holds to some form of biblical absolutes, you're thrown in with colonialists who use truth to control people. Okay? So your clinging to truth is your desire to control people's lives. Okay? That's what your kids are facing at college. And you have a responsibility if you're sending them there to help them to understand the pressure, the frontal assault that they will face. And most of it boils down to a simple truth. If God created then, and the then is what's unacceptable. Therefore, the premise that God created, therefore has the right to control, is rejected. Okay? I was stunned when Michael Bay, he said that to me. He said, there are ramifications of acknowledging that there is a God who designed because then he has the right to legislate and control behavior. And that, in our secular world, is unacceptable. Okay, just, so Malachi's arguing from a point that was true 20-some hundred years ago, and it's true today. If you lose the truth that God is your creator and your heavenly father is a Christian, you will drift off base and lose your moral anchor. And you will be adrift in the culture that you and I live in. I can tell you, the outcome of that drift will never end well. You will end up shattering the ship of your life on the rocks of modern culture, and it will destroy your life. God's aim in this Word from Malachi, didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? God's aim is to preserve the integrity, beauty, and value of marriage as it was intended in Genesis 2 as a building block of culture and creation. The first God-ordained institution in the Old Testament is marriage. 
the first time in the Bible that people are brought together for a God-ordained purpose, that is to have godly offspring, is in Genesis 2. And there it tells us that the original design is permanence. So we're not arguing from the teaching of Christ alone. We're not arguing from the teaching of Paul alone. We're arguing from the broad sweep of biblical teaching. That God in the beginning took a man and a woman and he made them one in a covenant, which is a contractual agreement not meant to be broken. A beauty is implied in the permanence. Divorce negates the impact of our homes on the next generation. Covenant keeping, loyalty in the context of your marriage, even when it is challenging, is beneficial to the next generation. We'll say, well, what if my home's imperfect? I don't know of any perfect homes. (laughs) I don't know of any. So get over the stuff. Work through the stuff in a God-honoring way. Preserve, seek to preserve the ideal picture that God gives in his word as a benefit for the next generation, for the glory of God. It's interesting to me that he says in this text, he is seeking godly offspring. Why? Why would God be seeking godly people to be on the rise? You know why? He wants to preserve the culture. He is giving a command that directly benefits the community that you and I live in. He could talk to anybody that works in the realm of education. We have a couple of law enforcement officers in our church. Start talking to people in leadership that are responsible for dealing with children and ask them what the number one problem is. The number one problem is that parents expect the school to parent their children. That is a serious problem. Because God never gave the authority or responsibility of raising children to government, ever. It is a travesty. It is a distortion of original design. The job of the government, the job of your local school is not to raise godly offspring. But that is clearly God's intent and your call in marriage. So parents, you need to take responsibility for your children. You need to be sure that they know the truth. And I'm going to tell you this right now. I have been challenged as I look back. And I'll go so far as to say I have regrets about things I wish I had done more faithfully for and with our children in regards to this area. So I don't stand before you as, as the premier example of everything that should be done. I am not. And so you try to make up, you try to do the things you can do, live the right kind of life, say the right kind of things, interact with them in a, in a peer fashion in counseling and giving guidance and direction, just like we do with each other. Start to take responsibility and let, let your life begin to impact them. He is seeking godly offspring. He is seeking people to be salt and light like Jesus calls us to be. There's a beauty in that. That's an outcome of loving the covenant of marriage. That's a reason to fight for what God called you into. Because it affects your children in ways that you cannot understand. 
verse 16 takes us to the heart of this text. It gives us God's conclusion. It says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. To divorce your wife, now listen to this, is to overwhelm her with violence or cruelty, some translations say, says the Lord of heaven's armies or the Lord of hosts. I'll tell you what, that is a solemn warning. That is a directive that causes you to be like, okay, with God, maybe not with my culture, but with God, and maybe not with the church in America, but with God, marriage is serious business. He hates that which destroys the context in which the next generation is to thrive. Now, I'm going to say this real quick. Are there exceptions to that heart of God towards divorce? Okay, my answer is yes. Divorce was never God's original design, but I can clearly show you in a number of texts in the New Testament that there are circumstances in which God allows, never commands, divorce. Hard-hearted adultery. Desertion on the part of an unbeliever. And I, I, I would also throw in there so that I'm clear that I think the government has responsibility, God-given responsibility, that there is violence against a mate, that the government has a responsibility before God to step in and stop it. Okay? So please understand how I'm saying that. Two clearly stated, and one extrapolated from Romans 13 and other places, that the government has a responsibility to be sure that individuals in the culture are not being damaged. And so there are laws on divorce and all those sorts of things that are helpful. There's a whole lot more to say about that. This time does not allow it. Why, why is God's heart towards divorce so strong? I mean, you're going to search long and wide in Scripture to hear God say, I hate blank. You're going to search long and hard. But here he uses the word. And I think it's because of this. I I want to extrapolate for a second. In Matthew, here's, here's what I believe about divorce. Divorce is to say, I wish you did not exist. It is the ultimate Without God-given, God-allowed circumstances, it is the ultimate, I wish you did not exist. Because when I say, I don't want to interact with you anymore, I am essentially wishing you what? Dead. Jesus said this in Matthew 5. He said, if you hate someone, which is the only way I can understand divorce, it ultimately comes down to, I can't, and I've had people say it to me, Pastor, I can't stand them anymore. And Jesus said this, when you come to the place in your heart where you hate someone, you've violated the command that says do not commit murder. It's not, please understand, it's not murder, but it is in the same vein. It wishes them gone. It wishes they did not exist. And my understanding, my experience has been when divorce is taking place, that is often the heart. Look, I realize there are people 
okay, who will say to me regularly, Pastor, we're going to get divorced, but it won't affect anybody. Okay, I'm going to tell you something. You're not talking to the people that live in my world. Because as a pastor, I watch and talk to personally people who are deeply scarred and impacted. And when I say scar, I mean this. They bear a wound that will never go away. A wound that they happen to have to live with. Because when you break the permanent thing, your breaking of it is also permanent. It takes away something God wanted for them. And in this context, God is so, this text kind of stunned me. I've read this before, but I did not see the clarity of it. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty or violence. It is to wish her harm, even if it is not intended. It's just because I'm interested in someone else. It, it damages her. Why? Because I'm a carpenter. If I glue together with Elmer's wood glue, the yellow stuff, two pieces of wood, and say, okay, now I want to separate them. And I've applied a good measure of glue to make them one. It's literally a welding. When I try to separate them, I cannot do it without violence. Okay? You cannot neatly separate one flesh. Okay? I I may be able to reduce the consequences at some level, but I cannot eliminate them. I think it's very important that as we look at this topic, we understand that. And if in some way you feel applauded by what I'm saying because you've stayed with your mate but are not loving them, you are doing them violence. So don't take comfort in the fact that I've hung in there and you're not loving them. You're not caring about them in the way that God says, love me and love your neighbor as yourself. If you're not doing that, you are damaging. You're withholding what's needed from them. And may God help me, may God help us, may God help you to understand and to get that part right with him. The main reason is this, okay? At the end of the day, I have to move into the New Testament to understand this. God says to Israel, I brought you out. One of God's favorite pictures of his relationship to Israel is that Israel is his bride. It's his, the love of his life. The book of Hosea makes this message clear that the Israel before God is his bride, his chosen one that he is committed to. And when I move into the New Testament, Jesus talks about a husband and wife. And he says, through Paul, he says, that's a mystery. But I am speaking as you look at the picture of a husband and wife living together as God intended and ordained in permanence, in love, that as you look at that, it's a mystery because it, it makes you long for something else. You want that to be true in a sinless world. Just like you want it to be true on a wedding day, but man, there's, there's things you know about that individual get married that they, they kind of make you a little nervous. You want it to be true, but that sinful tendency in individuals makes you a little nervous, right? It, it weakens the pleasure that you're longing for. Because maybe you know too much, okay? With Christ in the church, it's what, I, it's what I hope will happen in the marriage that will never happen in humanity. 
And that is that the relationship between Jesus Christ and Tim Hoff is one of perfection. He never lets go. I never fully tick him off to the point that he leaves me. He is committed and devoted to me. Has put his spirit in me so that I cry out to him and love him more. You see, there is a, a beauty in marriage when it is not perfect, but they're working at it. There's something beautiful about a home where there is transparency and they're working through their stuff. There is a greater beauty that is anticipated in that beauty. And it's something you long for. And that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, as, 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 as I conclude this, I, I just want to give these very simple applications. Number one is this. Guard your heart sexually. Many of the broken pieces of marriage in some way relate to a level of infidelity or an emotional connection or pornography or the list could go on and on. All those things will decimate, that will do damage to the beauty of what God intends and designed. So as Christians, what do we need to do? We need to be sure that we are guarding our hearts in the way that is sensitive to and understands the negative impact of certain proclivities or passions that take us outside of God's design and do violence and do damage to our partner. So the only way I can see it from this text. Job said in Job 33, 1, he said, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look upon a woman to lust. That covers a whole lot of categories. Job, is there attacking him? Job, what have you done? He said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to violate God's directive in relationship to my wife. It's, it's something that he can say and no one rebuts him. They say, yes, Job, that's true. Ephesians 5.3 says, let there not be a hint of sexual immorality among you. Nothing extramarital, whether it be emotional or physical or visual. Nothing. Paul says, not a hint. No indication. Nothing is allowed to linger and destroy. 1 Timothy 2, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, run from youthful lusts. Timothy, when temptation comes, turn the other direction and run. So first, guard your heart in terms of sexuality. Secondly, be devoted to keeping your promises. Understand what God says here. He says he hates the breaking of marital vows. Be a man, be a woman of your word. Be faithful in your marriage. The vows that are stated at weddings are comprehensive. And I've noted to a couple friends recently that they are unconditional. I have never been at a wedding where people made big promises and then said, if. Because it would be absurd and it would ruin the beauty of what you're longing for. It would shatter the glass like a rock. You know why there's nothing unconditional? Because we know that the original intent is permanence. That's God's desire. That is God's design. So I say to people, when you say your wedding vows, what you ought to say is what we say in court. So help me, God. I can't 
do this alone. I need God's personal presence by the Spirit prompting in me and fighting in me for the permanence and beauty of what he intends. Jude 24 says this. It says, Now unto him, God, who is able to keep you from falling and to present you in his presence with great joy and spotless. To him be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. The hope for Tim Hoff's life is God's work. That's my hope. That's your hope. To him who is able to present you faultless because of his blood that can cleanse from all sin. I want to say this. I, I, I live in a blessed position. Okay? And I mean that in terms of my family. My family is imperfect. There is, as I said before, divorce in my immediate family. Okay? Please understand how I say what I'm going to say. But I say it as one who values legacy. And it's only one generation deep. My dad grew up in an incredibly difficult home. Trusted Christ at about 30 years old. And went on a straight line to God. My dad is imperfect. Okay? So please understand how I say this. When our little Brooke was born, Erica's daughter was born, that was the 25th great-grandchild my parents had. Okay, 25th. There's 37 in the stream. Most of whom know Christ. Because some people think that their marriage matters. Not all. But enough to make a difference. My daughters, and therefore the grandchildren, have the benefit of generational faithfulness in marriage. And folks, please do not look at your circumstance and wish you had mine. Everybody that says, boy, I wish I grew up like you did. I said, you know what? I wish I had the benefit of hearing the gospel like my dad did and seeing that flourish in an unbelievable, faithful way in an entire family. Like, I'd rather know that if you understand how I'm saying that. And I say that with total gratitude for everything I've experienced and for the benefits my kids have with all the imperfections. But I love seeing a story of redemption. I love seeing the gospel invade a home and utterly transform generationally what is happening in that home because the spirit of God has come, taken up residence, and he never comes without effect. There's a beauty in that. And I hope that as I say that, you look into your own circumstance and say, how can I provide for the next generation hope and joy about marriage? How can I decimate this jadedness towards marriage how can i erase that from the hearts of young people that are in my church family i do it by modeling god-given patterns in the context of marriage and by settling for nothing less start where you are today regret regret over the past never changes the future you can wallow in it you can sit in it and the only thing it'll change is you And it won't be good. So I say get up. Start honoring God. Start doing what he's called you to. Start listening to the spirit as he prompts and guides in your relationship with your mate. 
and establish something new. Start something new. It's never too late to listen to God. And the last thing I want to say is this. Marriage is proclaiming. Do not simply exist in your home. Thrive in your home. Go further in your home. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Live like that. And when you do, your home, with all of its imperfections and all of its struggles, is covered by the grace of God that cleanses from all sin. You know, my greatest joy as a pastor, and I mean this sincerely, there are a lot of things that make me happy. There are things that disappoint me too. There are a lot of things that make me happy. There is nothing that makes me happier than seeing a broken marriage come back together. Nothing stuns me like that. Nothing amazes me like that. Nothing makes me happier than that. To see God's grace prevail and overcome in a situation where there was certainty that this will not last. God moves in and changes a heart and the impossible happens. There is no greater joy than that. I've had the privilege of seeing that. The stains of moral sin and marital failure may be more public and embarrassing and shame-inducing than other sins. But I want you to know this this morning. Those stains are not indelible. Those stains of shame and brokenness are not indelible with God. And 1 John 1, 9 says this. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive and cleanse from all, all unrighteousness. Even the sin that induces shame and hiding and part of your story that you think you shouldn't tell. Well, I'm going to tell you something. You should. For the glory of God and the exaltation of the cross, you should tell your story so that people can see where you were and where God has brought you for his glory. Perhaps you're here today and you're contemplating termination. God wants you to know that he knows. And he wants you to trust him. He wants you to know there is a better way. There's a way that glorifies God and protects your family. I understand there are circumstances where sometimes I've said to someone I believe before God, you do not have a command, but you have permission to walk away from that circumstance. It's that egregious. But I believe for most of us, the plan is to work through your crap, deal with it, start to love God, start to love your mate by the Spirit. It's his first fruit. And let God fix what you have not found possible to fix. And let him do it for your glory. I want you to stand with me. Ask Carmel to come up with the worship team. We're going to sing our closing song. I have to tell you, this song was, I don't, I don't know why, but this song was ringing through my mind as I studied this text. Because I honestly, I think about the pain that some people have. I think about the shame. I think about the regret. I think about the fear. 
I think about the impossible thought of true lasting differences. And I find it troubling. And I need to focus on God's mercy and grace. May this song help us to respond to what we have heard and to put it into practice in our lives this morning. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. New every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What love could remember? What love can remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, He counts not their soul. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. What patience, what patience, what wait as we constantly roam, what father so tender is calling us home, he welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more, praise the Lord. What riches of kindness he lavished on us His blood was the payment, his life was the cause We stood neath the dead we could never afford Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more Praise the Lord, 
His mercy is more Stronger than darkness New every morn Our sins they are many His mercy is more Our sins they are many His mercy is more Yes, Lord, this morning we give you praise for your faithfulness to us. If our lives are, as Christians, a marriage in the context of, Lord, we are married to you. In that sense, we give up our lives as Christians. We give up our souls to you, Lord. We are married to you, God. We understand our unfaithfulness. In that moment of conversion, we understood our unfaithfulness, and we're looking for you to be true and faithful to us. We also understand that we are also still unfaithful, Lord. As my sister said earlier, we have amnesia sometimes about our relationship with you. We have that with other people too, not just our spouses, not just, not just that Lord, but also with other people. God, we thank you though, that you are faithful to us, that we can trust in you and rest in you. And like we just sang, your mercy is more. What love can remember no wrongs we have done? I can remember the wrongs I have done. I know we all can. But Lord, you have forgotten them in forgiving us and redeeming us and moving us away from that, Lord, to you. God, thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for us and take our sins upon himself so that we can go free. Thank you for that faithfulness. Thank you that that continues to be something in our lives to this day, Lord. That is a truth that we can stand on forever. Jesus died for my sins so that I can go free. God, we thank you this morning. We can sing and hear your word. And Lord, as we leave this place, God, would you be glorified in our lives this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.